So quite a variety of questions came from you all. I'll do my best. (laughs) Uh, That's all I can do. (laughs) So I'll read the question. Uh, First one, would you please speak a little more about the Anapanaspat? In particular, what do we do if we lose sensation when the breath becomes less noticeable, more faint. I'm trying to train my mind to stay on that spot, really focusing on it, but I'm not clear if this is correct. So, this is correct. (laughs) Maybe I don't need to say anything else, but I did speak about it in the guided sit last night uh, towards the end. Um... And I'll repeat, uh, essentially repeat some of what I said last night. Uh, If there's nothing, uh, no sensation at the Anapana spot where you have been uh, focusing, or if it's very, very faint, and there's hardly any sensation there, just wait there, at that place. That's your spot. That's the spot you've been practicing with. And just wait there. Let patience be present in your heart and mind. And it will return. You will, you will uh, connect again. There will be something to, uh, to feel and uh, sense and know. Um, Another uh, piece of this, uh, and I did mention this again last night, but not in conjunction with this particular uh, question. Um, Sometimes the mind gets quite tired with this practice, especially in the initial stages. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to do this practice. So even though it's a very, very simple practice, it takes a lot of energy. So <clears throat> there may be some factor of, or some degree of tiredness in the mind, in the body, in the heart. Um, and that may be one part of why there isn't a, a connection being made or why there isn't a, a, much of a sensation being felt. That may be part of it. So check in and see if you're tired, if you're kind of worn out, feeling kind of worn out. Then you might do some walking. Switch. Switch what you're doing. Do something else. Maybe go outside, get some fresh air. Do some walking. Uh, Maybe you need a little bit of a rest, actually. And then begin again. So it's very important uh, to take care of... uh, the balancing of your energy with practice. That can be an aspect of, uh, of not being uh, really fully present with, with at the Anapana spot. That's a possibility. So.
the other night you gave <coughs> gave us a long list of kilesas. Uh, something, the hindrances, I think. Can't quite read this. Uh, I think maybe I, they were the hindrances and other usual suspects. But one stood out to me as missing from other lists I had heard. Elation. Could you say more about elation? Well, this really stumped me, I have to say, because I don't ever remember saying, calling elation a hindrance. So I had to take a look, and what is this about? Anyways, I finally think I figured it out. I, 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 I think I figured out what was being asked. I did, uh, I have given... Uh, 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 some lists, uh, uh, not last night but the night before, uh, what I called habits of attraction and habits of aversion, uh, habits of attraction being greed and clinging, expectation, attachment, habits of aversion being worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, doubt, uh, lethargy, restlessness. Well, there was no elation in there, so I went, What's next here? Well, what I figured out was that um, when I spoke about uh, uh, some of the occurrences, some of the states uh, that happen with practice, um, with the blossoming of gladness and gratitude, there's a joyful zest, uh, a taste of a wholesome elation and rapture that's born in us. That was the only place I used the word elation. Uh, But not quite the only place. So then I went on and spoke about uh, with this joy and the knowing of it without any attachment and without any personal identification the body and the mind become very tranquil. And with the maturing, the development or the occurrence and the development and the maturation of tranquility, and this, I'll just, I don't think I said this in the Dhamma talk, but um, this all occurs in the, in the process of the developing of concentration. Um, but in the uh, experience of jhana, this occurs to a much, much more a stronger and more profound degree. And that's actually what I'm referring to here, although it does go on all along the way to varying degrees. So, with the um, uh, without attachment and without identification in the joy and the elation, uh, sometimes called rapture, when that occurs and it comes to maturity, um, eventually, the body and the mind become very tranquil. And with the maturing of tranquility, and this is what I think was being referred to, <laughs> they, the maturing of tranquility removes both the overt and the subtle 
bodily and mental disturbances connected with joy and rapture. It's not a hindrance. I wasn't referring to it as a hindrance. But if you... And I'll finish the the sentence here. These uh, both overt, some of them overt and subtle disturbances, um, bodily and mental disturbances connected with joy and rapture disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. Now... I think that's what was being referred to. Um, If you think about, even if you don't have the experience of jhana, the first jhana, there's a a great, can be, or there is, if you're fully uh, absorbed in the first jhana, there's a tremendous amount of... uh, Joy and rapture, as it's uh, as it's referred to, uh, called often, um, and it's quite intense. And um, a PT uh, in the mind, not and once it's in the jhana, it's not in the body; it's just in the mind. And it can be uh, kind of wild, actually, <laughs> uh, um, fiery. And it's exciting, but as the mind and the body start to calm down and tranquility starts to come to the surface, there's a much more comfortable feeling that starts to happen. We, we like when we, in the first jhana, people really like it. It's exciting. It's wild. It's... full of fire uh, not brimstone but full of fire (laughs) not the brimstone but full of fire and excitement and energy just a tremendous amount can be a tremendous amount and uh, and it's all in the mind the body's not active in it when it's a a full uh, fully uh, fully fledged absorption uh, in the first jhana Um, and People get quite excited and happy about it and like it. But, as I say, as tranquility starts to develop, <clears throat> which it will if one keeps going, um, it's like, oh, you kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. Whew. It's like you finally can relax again. <laughs> it's not very relaxing, that, that intensity of that, of that jhana. I mean, you are relaxed in a certain way, in a very deep way. It's subtle, but it's it's not like really easeful. <laughs> and so, when the tranquility comes, it's it's a relief almost, or it can be quite a relief. And that kind of uh, fire disappears. That elation, that extreme elation, disappears. It's not that it's a kilesa. It's not a bad thing. But it dissolves and goes away, and one's left with this uh, very, very calm, tranquil, pleasurable state, which goes on, of course. Um, but uh, so I think that's that's what I only thing I could figure out from what I said 
that was um, a little bit misunderstood, I think. So, I hope that makes sense. Um, and uh, I don't want to dissuade you from the first jhana. I mean, it's a worthwhile experience. <laughs> not a, a bad thing at all, really. <laughs> um, now, in part, this relates to uh, another question here. Could you list the taints, the fetters, again, if you think it's useful? It's always good to recognize them as such when they appear. So I did just give a big list <laughs> of them. Repeat them. Greed, clinging, expectation, attachment, worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, doubt, lethargy, restlessness. That's a pretty good list. <laughs> and it is, for sure, very um, helpful to recognize them when they appear. Could you talk about ways to foster bright energy, <clears throat> such as feelings of joy, happiness, as one approaches concentration practice? And I have spoken a little bit about this, but uh, maybe not enough. Um, it is very important to foster bright energy as we do this practice. And there are lots of ways that we can help to foster that, foster it. One might be that um, spend a little time reflecting on why, we're de- why, why we develop concentration. What are the benefits of developing concentration? What are the benefits of, in it, in a in a practice setting, in a retreat setting, in the development of it in and of itself, and in our daily life. Um, developing calm, developing tranquility is a tremendous benefit for us as human beings. Remembering that, reflecting on it, recalling it. Um, the ease that comes can come with a concentrated mind. The use of a mind that's more able to focus on things uh, in your daily life. Um, I remember, I think it was maybe the first two months that I sat with Pauxite out. And I came out of it... um, and had to do my income taxes, which had always been one of my least uh, appreciated tasks in my life. <laughs> I did not like doing it. So I thought, oh, I can't. I can't do this. I've just been in retreat, so deeply in retreat for two months. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm just not going to do it. I mean, I have to, but how? So I sat down at my desk and uh, had everything spread out before me 
And lo and behold, it was so easy because my mind was so sharp and the capacity to focus was so available. I just whipped through it like I never had before. And it was fun because it was so easy. It's not the kind of task. I'm not a numbers person. I don't enjoy working with numbers particularly. But it was so easy that it was fun. And I thought, oh, okay, concentration, it's useful. (laughs) What a good thing. (laughs) So that's, um, you can reflect in your own life. What, What helps? How does it help? That focusing power and the calm and the tranquility. All of it. So that's one way of bringing in a, a kind of bright, interested energy. It's a beautiful practice in that it it develops really beautiful qualities of the heart and mind. So reflecting on that, um, relaxation. That's a big one. Very important. Uh, and it makes the mind very strong. And you, even if you just get a little taste of that. The strength of a mind that's calm, balanced, with a balanced energy, um, is quite something. Quite a useful kind of uh, mind to have. Um, So those reflections are really helpful. Um, I did talk about walking practice. And I think it's very important, and a couple of you have mentioned it in uh, practice interviews. Uh, walking practice with this practice of concentration is a, a, a time of refreshment. I don't think it's often spoken of that way or understood that way uh, by many people, but I, I'm, I come to that from my own experience. Um, as it being a tremendously refreshing. And also, Pauaxido, um, we just happened most days to be outside walking at the same time. He went out for a walk every day, and he would walk down the hill at the uh, <coughs> meditation center in Massachusetts and then back up. And I happened to be doing the same thing and often at the same time. And... Uh, uh, why did he do it? Well, because he needed some exercise, because he sat a lot, and to refresh his body, to refresh his mind, as the same reason I was doing it. I wasn't walking slowly. I was walking actually fairly quickly. I wanted, I wanted to have a somewhat of an energetic walk, and I was paying as much attention as was available, but not in a very detailed or uh, close way to the breath, but also my body as it was moving and um, every day I walked somewhere I mean I walked either up and down the hill or I walked out out behind the center uh, uh, and it was very refreshing every every time so that's a a way to help bring in a a bright fresh uh, light energy is to is to do that the other thing that uh can help is um, doing some mild exercise, some yoga or tai chi or qigong to um, again refresh the energy. Spending a little bit of time every day doing that, 
and staying mindful and staying mindful of breath and body. And so I'm going to ask a question. Is there anybody <coughs> in here in the room that have, finds other ways <coughs> to help bring in uh, a bright and fresh energy with their practice, with this practice? Any suggestions or anything that you found that helps? Yeah. I've been finding that it, um, it's been helpful to uh, remind myself to relax. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Great. Thank you. That's a good one. As this retreat's been going along, I, um, again and again, every day, it goes through my mind to, however I can, either intuitively or, or with a, a kind of more conscious uh, awareness, uh, to keep it light, keep this light practice sometimes is thought of as heavy. You know, we have to, we have to concentrate. And we do this when we concentrate. And I have friends, dark teacher friends even, who maybe haven't practiced with, with Pawaxida, who does keep it light in a certain way. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> his persona is light. I guess that's how it's light. He has a very, very light persona about him. And uh, so I keep saying, keep it light, keep it light. It's important we keep it light. Because really, it, uh, if you bring in a kind of heavy uh, effort, tightness, and uh, kind of repressed, suppressed, that's not concentration. That's repression, suppression, and heaviness. Concentration is uplifting, potentially. So, just remember that. (laughs) Okay. Um, Many questions on this little piece of paper. We'll switch tracks here a little bit. How can we use sense pleasure to create wholesome joy? That's something we could talk about, you know, in a long Dhamma talk in a certain way. But I'm going to be very brief with it. Um, uh, certainly, worldly sense, sense pleasure brings us joy. 
to keep it wholesome, wholesome joy, which is a, a key word here, uh, is be aware of the attachment and the clinging to it. So if there's attachment and clinging to uh, worldly uh, sensual pleasure, then it's no longer. I mean, you, you get, you, you glom on it and you're, self, you're identified with it and you're clinging to it. And if you really look carefully, it's not, it's not joyful after a very short while. Because why? Because it changes. Because nothing lasts. It's momentary or it might be a few minutes. But if you cling to it, if you hang on to it, if you're attached to it, and identified with it, it'll turn the other side of the coin painful. So keeping it wholesome means being aware of the anicca aspect of worldly joy. But it doesn't mean we don't enjoy. We do enjoy. And we enjoy more, I think. More purely, more fully, more deeply when we have at least some sense of the true nature of of our uh, worldly pleasures. Yeah. I mean, that's a big topic, but I, I think that's all I'm going to say at this point. Um, oh, and of course, then this is the other, another interesting one. After what I just said, uh, could you discuss the function of renunciation leading to joy versus um, deprivation? <coughs> That's a whole dhamma talk right there, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, so here we are, we're in retreat, and we've. Uh, we've committed to a fair amount of renunciation here. Every one of us. Think about it. What have you let go of that you ordinarily engage in? A few things. Why? Why are we doing it? Anybody? Why? Why are we letting go of those few things, or maybe more than a few things? Nobody knows? Because <laughs> this is important, yes. This is important. And if we let go of some of those things, does it make it more important, or does it... Why, why are we letting go? Because they're distractions. There you go. So, um, in a retreat setting like this, it's pretty clear, and there's some guidelines, you know, and and we're all supporting each other in it, and uh, we're letting go, we could say, of what doesn't serve our practice, more or less. Some of you are letting go less than others. Some of you are letting go more than others. I don't know if any of you go in your room and get on your cell phone or look at your look at the internet, you know, well then 
not so much letting go. If you do, don't do that, there's a big difference in how you engage in the practice and how the mind will be with your practice, with way less distraction. Um, So we're, in the retreat setting, we're letting go of various activities that we might connect with regularly outside of a retreat setting. And we're working on, especially, well, not especially, but in the, with the uh, Samatha practice, as I think I mentioned last night or the night before, maybe both nights, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of letting go that's necessary in order to practice concentration. And we do it little by little. Little by little, we let go, we let go, we let go, we let go of any thought, any mind distractions that take us away from our intention to pay attention to the breath at the Anapanaspat. Well, that's huge. It's a huge amount of letting go, of renunciation, we could say. Um, But we can't do it all at once. We have to do it gently and little by little. And we have to keep seeing the value of it. Otherwise, it feels like deprivation. And sometimes we do feel deprived. I mean, uh, when I talked about guarding the sense doors, some of you might feel deprived. It's beautiful here. We want to look at it all. We want to glom onto it. We want to smell it. We want to touch it. We want to look again, and then again, and then again. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what, what are we doing here? You're not really missing anything if you don't do that right now. And in fact, when it's time to be a worldly being again, <laughs> if you really do develop this, this practice, when you look at a tree, a flower, or the grass, or another person, what you see, the depth of the capacity for for seeing and sensing is increasing tremendously. Tremendously. So, it's not like it's a bad thing to let it go for now. Because we have, because this is a, this is a good thing. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what you said, Venerable Tree, but it's like this is, this is the right, this is what's important right now. Yes, this is what's important. It doesn't mean that we won't re-engage in the world and we'll re-engage with more depth more fullness truly we will we do so it's it's worth it and uh, um, it's an attitude really uh, I think in the case in, in this uh in relationship to our practice, 
if we feel deprived, and sometimes we do, sometimes we certainly may feel deprived of uh, some sensed or experiences, some experiences that we think we want and need right now. If we feel deprived, it's certainly based on past conditioning, that feeling of deprivation. And it has may have nothing to do with right now, but it's a, a feeling of deprivation coming from some past experiences. Um, and also sometimes I think there's misunderstanding if we feel deprived, and I'm speaking specifically in relationship to our practice, there might be some misunderstanding that we're, we're killing our capacity to uh, engage in the world, in the world of the senses, uh, and that we won't be able to do it. So there's some fear, maybe some fear underneath that, which is, again, um, it's not true. It's based in misunderstanding. Now, the other thing, of course, and I think everyone in this room knows this to some degree because all of you have practiced. This is not new. Practice is not new for any of you. We do, as our practice deepens, we do let go of some things and make new choices uh, over time uh, in our life to not engage any more in this or that because it is a distraction, because it isn't necessary anymore, because we find it to be um, unwholesome, if you will, or not helpful. And so we let go, but there's a very natural, organic process that goes on in letting go of certain aspects of life that we may have been engaged in previously and that we no longer even are interested in, we could say, because they don't really hold the same uh, meaning or necessity for us anymore. So we let go. We, we don't bother with that anymore. We don't do that anymore. We don't need that anymore. And that's not deprivation. It's quite natural, and it happens for all of us in a really wholesome way as we practice. And I'm sure if we went around... I'm not going to do that tonight, but you can, can, can reflect on your own life. Uh, just think about some of the things that have, things have changed for you in really beautiful ways, in really wholesome ways. How fortunate. I mean, it's wonderful. Life is better. <laughs> not less than, but more now, in a way. There's another question here. Uh, uh, could you review the touch points at the nostrils? I can do that very quickly. Uh, the person also said, should, he, should they talk about it in the next interview? But other people might want to hear this. I don't know. <laughs> um, there's just a few possibilities. I mean, there are a few possibilities. It might be... Uh, a 
all right? A, a touch point for some people might be right across the top of the upper lip. Or it might be in this space between the nose and the upper lip for some people. For some people, it's just right around the edges of the nostrils. Or it might be a couple of those places. In-breath one, for me, it's like usually right around the edges of the nostrils with the in-breath, and this little space here between the nose and the top lip for the out-breath is where I tend to have the most sensation. Occasionally, there's a person that has it on the tip of the nose. That's pretty rare, but that happens. Um, I think that's about it, unless any others have found other subtle places in here. Paul Oxida, we used to laugh. He would always go like this. <laughs> just, that's how he would say it. He would just go like that. <laughs> yes? What about sensations inside? Well, they might be a little bit inside, but uh, what I suggested, or not suggested, what I strongly encouraged uh, last night, and I, I don't know if I said it the night before or not, but is not to take, I'll go all the way up inside with the sensations. Just stay close to the edges here, inside a little bit, but not go all the way in. Because if you go all the way in, there's tons of sensations going up, in, in, down, through. And then um, what you're practicing is not a bad thing. You're practicing mindfulness and you're not really developing one-pointed concentration. So if we really want to practice one-pointed concentration, we keep it. It's, it's less, not more. So more letting go. It's <laughs> there's uh, so much letting go, and some of you, I'm sure, are, have discovered this daily, you know, little bits and things of letting go, letting go of this, letting go of this, letting go this and this and this and it's it's okay it's really okay when you find that it's okay because your your intention is to learn to do this practice because it's valuable because it's worth learning so stay close in okay I think that's all the questions on this So, uh, another question. You spoke about concentration being one of the five controlling faculties, the other four being faith, energy, mindfulness, and wisdom. Can you speak about um, how wisdom evolves to balance the other faculties and the unfolding of one's samatha practice? Well, that's a huge question. <laughs> I mean, it's a whole Dhamma talk question, as was one or two of the others here. So I'm not. I'm just going to talk about it a little bit. Um, and uh, first, to say that um, the five controlling faculties are also called the uh, five spiritual faculties, and they're also called the five spiritual powers, which I think I did mention. 
that when the controlling faculties are uh, well developed and mature, then uh, they're called the five spiritual powers because they are quite powerful. And um, I think that uh, uh, most valuable would be just to uh, uh, talk a little bit about each one of them and what why they're called controlling faculties. What do they control? They must control something, right? If they're called controlling faculties. And what that means, and how they work together, how they work in conjunction with each other. Um, so the first one, faith, and the, the Pali word is sada. And faith controls doubt. That's its controlling power, so to say. It provides um, the element of inspiration and aspiration, we could say. Uh, and it, it directs the mind or steers the mind uh, away from the, uh, the stickiness or the quagmire of, of doubt. And it has the power to settle the heart, to settle the mind into a, a very uh, beautiful and kind of serene trust in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, which is really the basis of our practice. The controlling faculty of energy, or effort, <coughs> and we can use some other words as well, persistence, perseverance, vigor, and the Pali word is virya. And this uh, faculty controls laziness, lethargy. <clears throat> and, um, and it kindles the fire, we could say, of a sustained effort, of a sustained endeavor, endeavoring in practice, which then, if we sustain with our effort and our energy, our persistence, our perseverance, um, the hindrances, the obstructions to practice, uh, eventually burn up. Without the, the faculty of effort, energy, persistence, perseverance, vigor, they don't. You have to have that, that effort and energy. So it's, it's a basic, uh, essential aspect of our practice. Mindfulness is the third one, and the Pali word is sati. And sati, or mindfulness, um, controls, often the word is heedlessness, or carelessness. That's its controlling power. And it's an absolutely uh, necessary ongoing component and a prerequisite uh, for us to penetrate the nature of things and to develop concentration. We can't, there's no concentration without mind, no development of concentration without mindfulness. We have to know what's going on. We have to pay attention. So the fourth one, the fourth controlling uh, faculty 
is concentration, and the Pali word is samadhi. And it, its controlling power is that it controls distraction. And it, it has the power, the capacity, to uh, hold the beam, so to say, the beam of attention steadily and calmly and in a composed manner, composed manner on whatever we're focusing on. And, and it's usually uh, often talked about as the, the rise and the fall of bodily and mental events. In our case, with this practice, this specific practice, it's the breath. Anapanasati. Anapanasati translates as mindfulness of breathing. That's the object of our uh, developing a concentration. How what we're using is the object to develop our concentration. And the development of concentration uh, deepens our capacity to gain or regain uh, the peaceful, natural, peaceful calm of our inner nature. We all have that, even though maybe for some of us it seems like, what? Where? (laughs) Where is it? It's there. It's available. And concentration will uh, help us to gain it or regain it. And another very important aspect of this controlling faculty of concentration or the spiritual faculty or the power of concentration um, is that it continues the work and the development or the ability of mindfulness to be able to really penetrate the true nature of life, the true nature of things. There's no mindfulness without concentration and there's no concentration without well, there is, can be concentration without mindfulness. But in our case, in terms of practice, there is no true development of uh, spiritual concentration without mindfulness. There was an interesting uh, a piece that I found today about it, and I think, I, I don't know if I... I'd like to just share it with you. Um, I don't know if I've got it uh, word for word here, but I'll, I might have left out some words, but let's see what happens. Um, uh, the deep development of concentration is essentially a training in increasing introversion achieved by cr- progressively diminishing the impact of outer stimuli. I thought that was a a very interesting way to say it. As a result of one's successful withdrawal and renunciation, the spiritually concentrated release the inward calm which dwells in their heart. So I like that, so I copied it. (laughs) And it goes on. This cannot be won, however, unless no attention is given to sensory data and everything sensory is viewed as equally unimportant. Now, it's just temporary, folks. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But it's worthwhile. Experientially, or subjectively, I think, as this uh, paper said, this is marked by a soft, tranquil, 
pacified presence. Objectively, and that was an interesting word, I had to think about why this person was using the word objectively. It's because of meaning the object. I'll read it to you and you'll see. Objectively, there is a movement of the mind, of the heart, into an unearthly world of experience which lifts one above the world and bestows a certainty greater than anything the senses may teach. That's jhana. (laughs) And it's true. It's actually true and helpful. And there's a lot that we learn from that. A lot we learn. And it changes our mind in really wonderful and wholesome ways. It doesn't make us hate the world. But we, we may not engage in certain things anymore because what for? It's, it's a wholesome process, actually. Um, and then this, this person goes on to say, actually, this is a quote, and he didn't say where the quote was from, but the experience is so satisfying that it burns up the world, so to say. <laughs> And then I added, which I've already said, uh, much is learned from this regarding what is important and what is necessary in life. So the whole process of that development in the letting go and the relinquishing and the renunciation, so to say, a lot is learned. And then if one does have the uh, experience of jhana, Again, the learning is just continuing going on. And I, I dare say that I think uh, often concentration, uh, and especially uh, the possibility of jhana, is not taught from that perspective. It's not taught from this perspective. But I feel that um, for myself, and maybe because I've practiced with Pawaksaida, although he doesn't really talk this way, but he... It's implied, and he's an example in his person of this. And my friends who I've practiced with, with him, we all feel that we've learned, there's a tremendous amount of learning that happens with this, this way of practicing concentration. It's not just uh, getting high on jhana, getting stoned on jhana, getting out of the world on jhana. It's a tremendous uh, wisdom practice. There's a lot of understanding. It's not head-on understanding that comes through uh, mindfulness-based insight practice. It's understanding that comes in from the wings. Because of the process that you're engaged in, what's happening, how the mind is being developed. And it's, it's really, really um, informative and helpful. <coughs> so that's... That's the fourth controlling faculty or spiritual faculty or spiritual power. And the last one is wisdom or discernment or understanding or insight. And the Pali word is panya and the Sanskrit word, which is maybe some of you are familiar with, is prajna. And the control, the uh, wisdom, is controls ignorance. It it um, goes through it. <laughs> and wisdom is really based on concentration. 
because as you may have heard through from other teachers I don't think that I've said it uh, or not exactly quoted it but uh, it, I've heard it many times and and quoted in slightly different ways but one who is concentrated knows sees how it really is or what really is that's a quote from the Buddha and that's quite commonly uh, quoted wisdom penetrates into the dhammas into the truths into the into all the dhammas all the aspects phenomena uh, uh, and sees them as they truly are it's and it's spoken about as uh, it disperses the darkness of delusion very important is that the development of the faculties of mindfulness and concentration two of the other um, controlling faculties uh, are absolute necessities for wisdom to blossom the Buddha called the faculty of wisdom uh, the crowning virtue among all of the requisites for awakening why? well pretty obvious because it drives away the darkness of ignorance and it lights up all the, uh, the three characteristics and the nature of all phenomena. So, um, so just in a sense to repeat, the five controlling faculties and the five spiritual faculties, they're designated as such um, because they exercise control in their own very specific compartments of our spiritual life. And I've mentioned some of that. Uh, And besides uh, uh, doing that, uh, each of these faculties uh, simultaneously perform, uh, they perform their own function, and then they also harmonize with the other faculties, these other other all five of them they harmonize with each other to establish the balance that's needed for a clear comprehension so I'd like to just briefly talk about that so for instance there's paired they're paired some of them are paired the faculties of faith and wisdom are paired with each other So, for instance, one who's very strong in faith and weak in wisdom, or weak in understanding, uh, has confidence, uncritical confidence, groundless confidence, maybe. One who's very, very strong in understanding and weak in faith can, uh, this is from the Vasudhi Maga, it says, it can err on the side of cunning, If there's no faith, just a, a strong understanding, strong wisdom. And the Masudi Maga goes on to say, and is hard to cure as one the sick of a disease caused by medicine. The medicine of wisdom. Hard to cure that person if that's all they've got. So with the balancing of the two, of faith and wisdom, a person has confidence, wisdom, Uh, I mean, confidence, uh, uh, faith, uh, uh, 
when there are grounds for it. It's that simple. So it's not a blind faith, but a faith based in understanding. The second pair of these five faculties is the pairing of energy and concentration. And um, very important, actually, and, and this uh, we've talked about not quite in this way. But, uh, so it's a, the balancing of uh, one's capacity for an active exertion with calm recollection. So, to say it in different words, not over-efforting in your practice with a very over-excited attitude and pushing really hard to get something. What happens? You get tired. You get tight. You might get upset probably will get upset, maybe angry, disappointed, because of an imbalance with concentration and energy or effort. <coughs> so it's very important, uh, and it's, uh, I, did, I think I did speak a little bit about it one morning, a few mornings ago. Um, the balance of effort and energy in relationship to our practice goes on forever, so to say, as long as we practice. It gets subtler and subtler and subtler. And we, as our practice develops, we are more more subtly aware of the subtle imbalances within uh, how we're expending our energy in our practice. And, just to say that that translates out into our daily life. We're learning as we're doing this. It doesn't just, it isn't just on the cushion, so to say, or on the chair. It really makes its way into our life as a whole, and it's extremely helpful. So, um, it al- also the uh, balance of um, faith and concentration. And the way that it's uh, usually spoken about, which was interesting, uh, uh, one working with concentration needs strong faith. Why? Anybody? It's hard. That's one reason why. Yes, it's difficult. And it's with this faith ongoing or developing faith with the development of concentration that one has the possibility of reaching absorption, reaching jhana. Without the faith, you'll never get there. (laughs) There's a kind of trust that starts to happen in yourself, in the practice. We could call it faith, confidence, trust. um, That brings a very... open-hearted trying to describe the feeling Um, kind of a very open-hearted trust is really the word that comes up again and again 
in the process, in yourself, in the process. And it it does uh, it dissipates fear eventually because fear will come up at times for people. Um, well, what if if I let go? Then what? What? What'll happen? How will it be? That's fear right there. And then you let go a little bit. Oh, it's all's okay. In fact, it's not bad at all. So more confidence, more trust, more faith. On it goes. I once described to a student, maybe more than one student, I'm not sure, but that the process um, that develops is a kind of process like falling in love where you fall fully in love and you're no you're not trying to guard or hold on to anything you have complete confidence and faith in what's going on and that's kind of what happens with this practice it's an interesting process it's not dissimilar in the feeling of it, in the in the experience of it. Again, I <coughs> no one ever told me that, and I've never heard a teacher say. But that's my experience, so I'm sharing it from from the heart, you know. And it's and when I've I've shared it with uh, some other people who've. Uh, had a, a very strong uh, concentration practice. They didn't disagree, but they wouldn't have described it that way. But that's, I think it's an accurate, at least from my experience, description. Um, the balance of concentration and wisdom, and I think this will be about it. As we work with uh, uh, concentration, um, we need to develop a tremendously strong unification of mind. Because that's really how one reaches the, the deeper and higher development of concentration. And a unification of mind is a mind that has a lot of wisdom in it. It's a, it's, a, it's a wise mind. It's a mind that is filled with not a, 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 an intellectual understanding, but a very intuitive uh, sense of wisdom and understanding. So there's that connection. And just to say, mindfulness is not paired. It's paired with all of them. It's not a pair with one of them. Because mindfulness, in a sense, stands above, so to say, all of these pairs. And uh, it protects the mind. Mindfulness protects the mind from extremes, and it ensures that, uh, that each of the pairs, or the members of each of the pairs, hold one another in mutually restraining and mutually enriching and mutually respective a relationship. Strong mindfulness is needed in all instances. And the Buddha, I, I, in my mindfulness talk, I say, I 
mention this and I say, the Buddha talked about it as like a salt. How did he say it? I can't quite remember. Strong mindfulness is needed in all instances just as a salt is needed in all soups or something like that, he said. He was all very practical all the time. <laughs> Even if you're not supposed to eat salt, you know, it tastes better. Mindfulness protects the mind from lapsing into agitation uh, and lapsing into idleness. And concentration, over-concentration without mindfulness, without wisdom, can lapse into idleness and a kind of lethargy, as probably all of us have experienced at times when we practice concentration, where we get really dull. Over concentrated. There's no liveliness in it. So that's just a little bit about those. And then there are two more questions that are uh, quick to answer. Can you make a distinction between Theravadan and Vipassana? Um, Theravada Buddhism is a school of Buddhism. And uh, within Theravada, uh, one aspect of Theravada practice is vipassana practice, or insight, mindfulness-based insight practice. Um, The Tibetans also practice vipassana, but really the root of... uh, of, uh, Insight practice, vipassana practice, lies in the early Buddhist school, Theravada school. So I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs about it, but there's no distinction, so to say. They're one is part of the other. And the last question is really easy to answer. Does a teacher ever lose focus when sitting? <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> that's the answer to that question. <laughs> I mean, maybe the Buddha didn't, but <laughs> the rest of us do. <laughs> so that's it. Um, let's sit quietly for just a few let the energy settle and find that place in you again of calm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.